This is an RNZ podcast. Hello, I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. And this is Pop Culture, the podcast exploring themes and characters of popular culture and the contexts in which they come to be. Every week, one of us is going to pick a theme and then lead the way on exploring it. And over the next few weeks, we're going to look at stuff like representation and inclusion in film, television and pop music. The huge boom in gaming culture. Taste, as in good taste versus bad taste and who gets to define which is which. And the future and potential futures of pop culture. But we thought it might be a good idea to start with something fun and not too serious, though you may find that it's more serious than you thought at the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, it's definitely serious business for an increasing number of people. Yeah, it is. So enough beating around the kelp. We're going to... Yeah, see what you did there? (laughs) We're going to be talking about mermaids. You seem to have a a tail. Yeah. I have. I'm a mermaid. Okay, Melody, why mermaids? I mean, basically, mermaids are having a moment. Okay. You know, like vampires did with Twilight and True Blood in the Vampire Diaries around 2008, 2009. Mm -hmm. I'm guessing you were Team Edward. Is it that obvious about me? Well, I mean, I was too. (laughs) But have you noticed that there's a bit of mermaid mania going about lately? I mean, I hadn't, and then you pointed it out to me, and Mm. then it was like I saw it everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it is everywhere. And I've since I've started talking with people about this, I'm getting photos in my inbox and over Messenger of t-shirts and mermaid-related paraphernalia, which Mm. is everywhere. There's a whole lot of new mermaid releases that are out now or scheduled for release, like Siren, which we've both been watching lately. We have indeed, yes. How many are you a couple of eps in, Derek? I've watched the first episode, Mm. and Melody, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Did you? Yeah, I really enjoy it too. But I just suddenly, as you said that, I remembered you saying something about guilty pleasures of bad horror. Is it the horror kind of side of it, what you're liking? A hundred percent, yes. And I would definitely put it in that slightly guilty pleasure uh, bracket. Yeah. Because it's not mermaids as we've seen them in The Little Mermaid or Splash. Like these are... Apex, Killer mermaids. Apex predator mermaids. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Um, and currently there are three new Little Mermaid movies being released or in the works. Did you what? know there were three? Yeah. No, I didn't. There's the official Disney version, which you and I have talked about, and that has Lin-Manuel Miranda on board. Mm. Um, but it's so far in its early stages, I, as far as I know, they're still casting. There's a universal version, which has gone through a bunch of different directors and writers. And at one point they announced that Chloe Grace Moretz would play the lead role, but then she pulled out. So it's been a bit of a disaster production so far. And then in late 2018, there was an indie adaptation that was released that was lower budget but still did feature Shirley MacLaine. What? Yeah, although it didn't do very well. That one didn't do very well. So, yeah, that's that's not even counting the releases that are mermaid adjacent but not strictly. What do you mean by mermaid adjacent? Well, like The Shape of Water, which is, you know. A fish man. Yeah, the the (laughs) sexy fish man. (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of sexy fish man, I I just saw uh, Jason Momoa in the film Aquaman. Sexy fish man in. Indeed, yes. Yeah. Mm, how was loved, that? Lo- loved it. Yeah. Absolutely loved it. And I was thinking of this episode while watching it because there's a variety of different sort of uh, 
fish peoples in mm. that film. It's very cool. But mm. Jason Mamor is, is is fully legged. Okay, <laughs> and that's probably a good thing. So, <laughs> I mean, your Instagram feed probably looks quite different to mine. I mm. assume. But man, there was a period there where you couldn't scroll without coming into contact with mermaid hair or mermaid <laughs> slogan tees. On YouTube, there are so many tutorials for mermaid hair and makeup. A lot of you wanted to know how I do that kind of like mermaid hair look. Today I am doing a really pretty iridescent kind of mermaid inspired look. Love some blue mermaid hair. Dye my hair mermaid color. Speaking of looks that have been done 87 million times, today I'm going to teach you how to be a mermaid. And then there was that tweet that went viral in response to mermaid hair where a dude was talking about, you know, why do women do this? Don't they know that men don't find it attractive? And comparing it to the fact that animals use bright colours to warn off predators. You know what? I genuinely did see that tweet. <laughs> Don't you know, women, you're actually sending a warning sign to men? Oh, my gosh. And the beluga knees tweet that went crazy as well. Did you see that one? It was a, I don't think a I photo did see that of one. some like beluga whale knees, and, and a, <laughs> but not actual knees, but associating that to old sightings of mermaids. Anyway, that might be worth searching out. I, I just feel like it's fairly safe to say that there's a new wave of mermaid media coming through now, and at least over mm. the last couple of years, and maybe cresting currently. And obviously it's not the first time that this has happened, that mermaids have taken the world by storm. I don't know about you, but I know every word and every song to The Little Mermaid. Okay. No? I've never seen it. What? (laughs) I'm sorry. How is this just coming out now? Tony Stanton, leave your desk. That's my confession. Oh, my goodness. Give me 90 minutes. Do you know what I've got for you, though, actually? I'm going to send you a link because as children, we we had two versions of The Little Mermaid. We had the Disney one with Ariel, Mm, and then we had another one. I've Mm. recently dug it out, and it's an anime, and I think you may... Oh. actually quite enjoy that one. Okay. And for those a little bit older than me, there was another mermaid who was, for many, very influential. Jennifer, Joni, Hillary? See, names, names. Uh, Linda, Kim, where are we? Madison. Uh, Elizabeth, Madison. Samantha. Madison, I like Madison. Well, Madison's not a name. Well, all right, okay, fine. Madison it is. Good thing we weren't at 149th Street. I would have seen Splash at the films at the Odeon in Rotorua. Came out in 1984 when I was 10. So this is Megan Dunn, and the mermaid that got her was Madison, played by Daryl Hannah in the 1984 classic Splash. It's more the feeling that it left me with, like a feeling of uh, being on a total high. You know, you're so young and you haven't seen a lot of films and you're not familiar with the nature of story and you're really like at a point in your life where you're just completely porous. And so the film's effervescence and, you know, Daryl Hannah's incredible portrayal of the mermaid struck me as utterly wonderful. So much so that I bought my first pet, a goldfish, and I named her Madison. Madison didn't live long. Um, I don't have a good track history with goldfish. <laughs> but she was buried. I wrapped her very tenderly in a yellow serviette and she was buried under a lemon tree in the back garden. So that was my Madison. Mm, not buried at sea, so, sadly. So cute, though. I have a fact about the name Madison for you. Oh, go on. 
Did you know that the name only sort of emerged as a girl's name after Splash came out? Isn't that it, amazing? It wasn't a thing before that. It was, it was just a surname. Yeah, so if you meet a Madison, it's worth asking because a lot of Madisons were named directly for that film. And the same thing happened in the United States, but I'm sure it was more far-reaching than, than that with Bella and Jacob after mm. Twilight. So mm. I guess that's when you know that something's really resonated with the public when people start naming their spawn after <laughs> mythical movie characters. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so back to Megan. It's now years later, and she's studying at the Elam School of Fine Arts in the 90s when Splash makes a sudden re-emergence in her life. At the time, she was making these little video pieces where she would rent videos from Blockbuster Video or wherever and then recut them into her own little weird niche art pieces and show them in little galleries. And Mm. one of the scenes that she used was the one from Splash where Madison turns into a mermaid in the bath. So I was kind of stealing like footage, you know, from a high high production Hollywood film, and and using it to to riff on what this presentation of the mermaid now meant to me as an adult who decidedly, sadly, didn't look like Daryl Hannah as the mermaid Madison. <laughs> but anyway, I was told in one tutorial, my my teacher was just like aghast that when I showed her this small piece about Splash, and I just remember her going. Look, this can't be about Daryl Hannah, can it? The tutorial just ended in her epic frustration with my lowbrow source material. I suppose really she was saying to me, dig deeper. Like I do remember her saying, think about the mermaid in different cultures, different contexts, all of this stuff, which funnily enough I'm now doing. So there, there's two moments there. There's that childhood embrace of the magic that they created in that film. And then there's that, you know, early adulthood moment of being told, no, you can't use this material. This isn't influential material. You must think more seriously and deeply about this. I really like Megan. Yeah. How did you find her? It was one of those beautifully serendipitous moments when um, I was starting to research this episode and think about mermaids and why we love them so much and what Mm. that says about us. And I went along just separately to a Writers on Monday session at Te Papa. And there she was on stage talking about her latest writing project, which is a book about real life mermaids. So people who are professional mermaids. Mm. Serendipity. Yeah. Do, do mermen come into this equation? Yes, and tritons, basically anyone <laughs> whose job or side job or hobby includes donning a mermaid tail. I became fascinated that other people had loved the movie too, but had taken it quite literally as an incentive to embody the mermaid or merman in their lives. I can't say that in some ways my mermaid book isn't a revenge piece because I have discovered that this really can be about Daryl Hannah because of all of these other mermaids. That is awesome. Uh, Revenge. Very motivating thing. Oh, totally. So the book that Megan's writing is called I've Heard the Mermaid Skyping, and it's called that because she's been <laughs> Skyping with so many mermaids and people, and she's become quite an expert on the topic. So mm. I thought she'd be a good person to start with regarding the why of this episode. Why are mermaids so popular? Why now? It's kind of the million-dollar question, isn't it? Hannah Mermaid will say it's the connection to the ocean. Water is precious, and we've realised it's our most precious commodity. And many other mermaids echo this, and many mermaids are involved with ocean activism in all sorts of ways. And this is a way that people are trying to bring focus and, and meaning to it through the figure of the mermaid and trying to have some effect towards optimism. One thing a lot of mermaids tell me 
me is that they could have never imagined how happy this would make other people and not just kids but adults too like it really gives people a happy buzz and um that there's a lot of joy in that and I suppose for as a writer I've been exploring what makes pessimism seem more authentic than optimism do you have some sort of answer to that yet Ah, I don't think I do yet. But like mermaiding is also full of lots of aspirational little phrases like, you know, I'm done adulting, let's be mermaids. That's the kind of thing that puts me off. But then maybe (laughs) I need to analyse why that puts me off. Well, people are trying to harness the magic whatever way they can. You know, sometimes that might feel quite cloying, but it it all depends on what strata of society you're from. Mm. And I think, you know, I have been... Am I being a snob? Uh, I yeah. wouldn't say that, but there are different value systems mm. across different groups of people. Mm. And, uh, you know, like w- at one point my cousin said to me, what makes this different to fairies? And I kind of balked and went, fairies? <laughs> it was like, I draw the line at fairies. And then, I, and then I had to question myself, you know, like where the hell do I get off dissing fairies? <laughs> <laughs> Why is it when someone's like, this is great and let's be mermaids and let's have fun and explore the magic of the world that we're like, what are you, what dark past are you hiding? I know. Who even my, you? my first inclination is to laugh when you say that. I know. You know I can't help it because we're told that we are supposed to care about taxes and, um, you know, paying off a mortgage now. Oh, man. So before we move on, Megan did have one other thing to say about why people might feel themselves reacting like, you know, the th- kind of thing we're talking about. Mm reacting against mermaids. Look, I think anything that's heavily merchandised is always going to make us suspect. And at the moment, Mm. there is a weird kind of unicorn um, mermaid hyper crossover glitter-tastic narwhal kind of freak-out going on. It's even in Wickles, you know. Mm, And that that probably means it's it's, it's, it's nearing the end. You know, <laughs> you need to get writing. <laughs> yeah, I need to write faster, write faster. That's Megan Dunn, and the book she's talking about writing there is I've Heard the Mermaids Skyping, which hmm. will be released when she's finished it. <laughs> and we'll hear from her again as well. So Megan's been interviewing professional mermaids and mm. mermen from all over the world. In yep. fact, we're going to hear from one of them later on. But mm. maybe you can tell me how many there are out there. Oh, there are quite a few, and mm. I don't have up-to-date numbers for 2018, but a lot of articles that I found estimate that in 2015 there were about a 1,000 full-time professional mer people working mm. in the United States alone. A 1,000 who listed their job as right. mer person. <laughs> wow. And there's no one way to be a mermaid either. You know, there's people like Hannah Mermaid, who uh, Megan mentioned at one point, and who's probably the world's most famous professional mermaid. She's an ocean activist and does these amazing underwater shoots in all sorts of costumes, not just mer costumes, that appear to require a good amount of athleticism. And then there's a bunch like her who are super famous through their YouTube channels like Mermaid Linden and Mermaid Melissa. But there's also mermaids and mermen and mers who entertain at children's parties and at theme parks and at bars. Mm. You know. Are there any New Zealand mers? Yeah, there are, although according to Megan, there aren't really professional mers here in New Zealand yet. Though. Oh, right. We're surrounded by water. It's a matter of time. <laughs> but I was thinking about New Zealand mermaids and something popped into my head from a conversation that I had with poet Tei Tibble. I don't mm. know if you know her. I don't. Her collection Puka Hangatis was released last year and 
deservedly received a bunch of praise. It's really great. And she also loves mermaids. So here's her just briefly talking about why. There's another reason why I've always like liked mermaids or I feel like a kinship with mermaids. Is there something that's something especially about I think maybe being a person of colour or a woman of colour or being like half cast or like um both Pakia and Maori is that idea of being between worlds. I know I'm not the only like Maori girl who's like thinks this or talked about this. Um, I've got a friend, Jess Thompson, she's just released a zine called um The Maori Mermaid Sings and she um she's talked about that too, about being um Pakiha and Māori and feeling like torn between worlds like a mermaid. Yeah. So I think there's definitely something, there's some parallels there, which I think um, has definitely been striking to me throughout my life. So I, I have to jump in here and talk about Aquaman again, because this <laughs> You're going to be doing this this whole time, aren't you? I probably am. Continue. So, so, so in the comics, Aquaman is this blonde dude, but the key thing is that he comes from two worlds. He comes mm. from the, the sea and the land. Mm. In the movie... They've made this uh, connection to race really explicit by making his mother, Nicole Kidman, and his father, Temuera Morrison, who plays a native Hawaiian person. Mm. And so this whole thing of being two worlds Mm. is absolutely – it's the whole theme of the entire movie is that he has to unite these two worlds and kind of figure himself out. Yeah, and you hear – you know, we've just heard Tayi talking about it, and she spoke to me about her friend Jess, who I follow on Instagram, the Maori Mm. mermaid, who feels similarly – and. You know, you hear a very similar sentiment echoed across a bunch of different communities, and we're going to hear more of that throughout this episode. But there's one particular sea maiden who Tayi feels a kinship with, who isn't strictly a mermaid, but is sea folk unquestionably. And she's a famous figure of Maori mythology named Pania of the Reef. Oh, I remember the first time that I like saw or encountered Pania. I went to like a Pakeha primary school, and we had like two. Maori books in our library. It's like one was like Maui in the Sun and Pioneer of the Reef. And yeah, I remember seeing her on the cover, topless with her like really long purple, blue, and green hair. For me, Pioneer was a Maori mermaid. <laughs> Do you know the book or the story? I actually don't. Mm. I, I looked it up um, when you were talking about this episode. Yeah. Have you seen So you saw the cover? I've seen the cover, it's yeah. Classic Peter mm. Gossage. So let's tell the story quickly now. Aramayuri. This is my friend Mara reading Peter Gossage's book to his kids. So as the story goes... Pania was a creature of the sea, yet she looked like any ordinary person on the land. So just like we enjoy a dip in the ocean, Pania liked to visit the land and have a swim in a freshwater spring. And one day when she was visiting the spring, she saw a young chief. And over time the pair fell in love and eventually had a baby named Morimori. But because Pania was a creature of the sea, she still had to return to the ocean every evening, and eventually the young chief began to worry that their son would be like Pania and want to go to the sea too. So he went to the tribe's tohunga, who said that to keep Pania and Morimori with him, the chief should place cooked food on their bodies as they slept. But when he went to do it, Pania woke up and fled with Morimori back to the ocean. When they got there, Morimori transformed into a shark, and broken-hearted Pania became a rock, where fishermen came to catch rawaru, tamure and habugu. It is said that at ebb tide, Pania can be seen below the water with her arms outstretched towards her lover. Oh, that's really beautiful. It is so beautiful. And have you been to the statue of Pania in Napier? 
I think uh, back in my childhood, mm. I have uh, seen it, yes. Yeah, it's a beautiful little statue. Um, it's been compared to the Little Mermaid statue in Copenhagen quite a bit. Mm. It's this little bronze figure of Pania sitting atop a rock in her heitaki and pupu with a huia feather in her hair. And I've loved it since childhood because my mum grew up in the Hawke's Bay and adored it. So every time I go there, I have to visit it. And recently I was poking around on the internet reading about this statue when I stumbled upon a story in a newspaper that was all about the search for the face of the statue. So for the girl who would model as Pania, Hmm. six students from Hukereri Māori Girls College were chosen as possible models for the sculpture and the final honour went to a girl named Mei Whaiteri. You're asking me to go back 60, 67 years and back to 19... 51. And this is May. She's 80 years old now, but I'm sure as beautiful as the day she modelled for Pania. At that time, being only a 13-year-old, I wasn't aware of how important Pania would be to Ahuriri, which is part of uh, the Rohe or Ngāti Kahungunu. I probably had to grow up with her to where I am today to realise how important it was. Part of the reason that Pania is so important to May and to many others is because she is, to them, much more than a myth. She has a whakapapa and exists as both a legend and a real person. So she's May's ancestor. And that connection between them was made even stronger in 2005 when Pania was briefly stolen from Napier's Marine Parade. When she was eventually found, the police allowed me to go and visit her. She wasn't on the the big stone. I was standing equal with her on the ground. Mm. I wrapped my arms around her and there was a tear. I saw a tear come out of her eye and for me that was a direct, um, that, that uh, the bond between Pania and, and to myself became a real and, and then made me think, gosh, I am her and she is me simple as that. Do you still visit um, Pania much to this day, May? Well, when I go to Ocean Spa, which is probably two, three times a week, I always acknowledge Pania. And on the way back, if I've got time, I would call in, especially to take all my mokopunas. So then one day when I'm not here, they're going to be very lucky mokopunas to be able to go and visit they can say, well, that was our nanny. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's what you leave behind after you've gone is of importance, especially as Māori. And I think it's been my privilege to have been given the role of having to model for such a beautiful uh, statue like Pania and its whole whakapapa that surrounds her. That's May Faitiri, the face of the Pania of the Re statue in Napier. Can I mihi tu ngā wahine tawhito o tukura o hukarere? There's probably a lot of us uh, not here today. They were my support. And that's what I'd like to add at the end of this corridor with you, Melody. Thank Kia you. May. This is Pop Culture. We're talking the current wave in popularity of mermaids in popular culture. 
And as we've mentioned, this isn't the first time that mermaids have captured the public's imagination. In 1948, there was Mr. Peabody in The Mermaid. There was Splash in 1984. There was Disney's The Little Mermaid that we've just discovered Tony Stamp has never seen in 1989. (laughs) And mermaids pop up again and again in all of the years in between. But if you start comparing the mermaids that we know to each other, you start to notice a lot of similarities between them, especially when you take into consideration the fact that mermaids and sea folk and lake beings or things like mermaids exist all around the world, like our very own Pania. So how did that happen? In Western mythology, Hans Christian Andersen obviously shaped quite a lot of the understandings of mermaids with The Little Mermaid. This is Dr. Jenny Kokai. She's the author of a book called Swim Pretty, which essentially uses aquatic spectacles or mermaid shows as a jumping off point to analyse things like race and gender. And so we sort of got a tradition that got very wrapped up in a white, beautiful, heteronormative Christian femininity. And that was sort of intensified by the 1989 Little Mermaid movie. And so While there was historically a tradition of lots of different kinds of sea creatures, not all of whom were beautiful, the mermaid that we see most commonly in our culture comes out of that super white, super thin, super conventionally attractive kind of body. I think the other thing that's really interesting about race and mermaids in particular is that frequently mermaids come with animal or crustacean sidekicks that are voiced or represented by people of color, like Sebastian the Crab being the most famous example, which is a lot about, I think, containing threats of sexuality. Can you explain what you mean by containing sexuality? So at least in the history, in the U.S., in the history in the U.S., there has been a concern about the threat of black male sexuality in particular. And, you know, historically, we saw this play out in extremely harmful ways where, for example, young black men are accused of rape or assault and in the South were lynched for this reason. So there's a lot of research like Eric Lott's book, Love and Theft, about the ways that Black male sexuality was both hyped up and admired, but also considered to be very, very threatening to Mm. white women in particular. Uh, And so I think this history carries through into movies like Disney's Little Mermaid, whether they intended to or not, by keeping white mer people, the sort of humanoid people, one race, and then Ariel's not hanging around with a black merman, Sebastian, who's her chorus teacher. She's hanging out with a non-threatening crab. So this leads pretty perfectly into the person that we're going to hear from next. It totally does. So Mm. most depictions of mers that we see are mermaids. But there's a whole demographic of the mer community that doesn't fall under that umbrella. Before you do this, can I play the clip? Go on, play the clip. You're dead to me, boy. You're more dead to me than your dead mother. I just thank the Lord she didn't live to see her son as a mermaid. Merman. (coughs) Merman. That's from Zoolander, if you didn't already know it, but of course you all knew that. (laughs) It's time to hear from a merman. So I handed this assignment over to you, Tony. Tell us who you found. I found a guy called Merman Jax, who lives in Los Angeles. He's got a a background as a competitive swimmer, and he Mm. runs a place called Dark Tide Productions, which seems to be 
doing really well. What do they do? Well, according to their profile, they cast character atmosphere, live swimming, merfolk, movement performers, and more. And essentially what that means is there are a bunch of models who dress up as mermaids and do underwater uh, demonstrations and for people's it, parties. And if you were making a movie like, say, Aquaman or Siren, a series like Siren, you might get in touch with someone like this for, exactly. for your merfolk. Amazing. Mm. So one of the things I wanted to find out from Jax was if he had any early memories of, you know, mermaid or merman-related media that, that really stuck with him or influenced him. I think one of my main big cognizant mermaid memories was watching an old film, Mr. Peabody and the Mermaid, with my grandmother. And it was a black and white film. I think it was one of the first big mermaid films I ever really watched. There's only one way out of it that I can see. Polly's got to meet you. Polly, darling. And this is Lenore, the young mermaid I was telling you about, remember? She lives in a little castle at the bottom of the fish pond. Sometimes you see something and something kind of clicks and it's like, huh. And there's something you identify with or connect with. And I feel like watching that film, there's just something about it that seemed, and I hate to use this word too, normal. I don't know. I connected with the idea and the, and the energy and just it's something that stuck with me. That's really interesting. I feel like a lot of people as kids will have had similar reactions of feeling like it just kind of, you know, we heard Megan talking about Splash. I have the same mm. thing with The Little Mermaid where it just kind of struck you. But but obviously everyone doesn't go on to then become a professional mer person. And Megan Dunn told me that a lot of the professional mers for them the moment when everything just clicked into place was when they put on a tail. Mm. Was that the case for Jax? Yeah, it sounds like that's exactly the case. It just felt so easy and it just kind of felt like, ugh, why haven't I always been swimming like this? <laughs> you know, it may sound a little crazy, but it, just, it felt very, very natural. It didn't feel weird. It didn't feel hard. It just felt good. It's interesting, yeah, because, I mean, that couldn't be more different to me. I would feel so claustrophobic if I couldn't move my legs and I was underwater, you know? I, I suspect I'd be the same, but I also feel like neither of us have tried and so we, we maybe well, maybe that's the next natural step in this Good process. <laughs> <laughs> so as I said, Jax lives in LA and uh, runs his company Dark Tide Productions. Mm. From talking to him, I got the sense that there were quite a few other murs around in the sort of, you know, showbiz industry. Mm. But it sounds like it still makes for a pretty interesting conversation when people ask him what he does. Oh, geez, here we go. <laughs> Trying to explain my life to someone. Which, as you know, is a question that tends to come up pretty early on when meeting someone. I start with usually I'm an underwater performer. And that seems to be a nice bridge into it. And I say, you know, I can do underwater performances. I'm trained for aquariums, for shows, for things like that. And I said, and essentially I wear a tail, some professional merman. So I try to lead into it because if you just say professional mer person that that means nothing yeah people know what those words mean separately but together they have no idea what you're saying i've personally had very little negative reactions in person people are usually just fascinated that this is even a thing and then that you get paid well for it and it's just usually it's just a lot of curiosity a lot of questions so i talked to Jax for quite a while about mer stuff and <laughs> politics in general and one of the things we touched on quite a bit was diversity and representation we talked about a lot of the same things that you just touched on with Jenny. Mm. So so Jax himself is gay, and according to an informal study done by Rania, the Halifax mermaid, 
queer mermen outnumber straight mermen. Mm. So before he got into mer stuff, he was an actor and a model. And when he talks about the reasons he got out of the biz, he started to touch on a lot of very similar stuff to Dr. Jenny Kokai. Because I'm multiracial, I was so often one of two polar opposites like gangster thug criminal person or I was like a sexy nightclub person and it was kind of like is this all the industry thinks of me I'm either literally like a criminal or I'm like a sex object you know there are a lot of lovely blonde and red-headed mermaids and yeah that makes sense with a lot of the visual presentation and even just art throughout the years it's just always so funny to me that people don't realize that the idea of the mermaid is kind of like the vampire in a sense that every single culture has a representation of that archetype. My company has been lucky enough where I've amassed a really talented, diverse team and people now can come to us specifically and say, hey, my little girl has never seen a black mermaid and she's a mermaid who looks like her for her birthday. Can you help me? So for me, diversity is very, very important both professionally and personally. I wanted to touch on something that I read in an interview with you. You're sort of talking about the, the, I guess, the responsibility of taking this on. You say it's something I don't take lightly. No. It's an honor to be a role model. From the spectrum of, I never knew it was okay to be gay. I never knew it was okay to be a merman. I never knew I could be a merman since I'm not white. You must feel, I mean, quite privileged in a way that you've found this. It honestly never occurred to me that I would start getting messages from people around the world who really not only connected and appreciate what I did, but it meant a lot to them. I mean, I've gotten young men from like the Middle East and they're like, I can't be gay, I can't be me, like I could literally be put to death and you're so inspiring, I wish I could do what you do. And, you know, it breaks my heart at the same time. Yeah, it's a huge responsibility. It's something I try not to get overwhelmed by, but it seemed to be a missed opportunity not to use it as a platform, I think, to try to help or at least reach out. Sorry, I'm just um, following Merman Jacks on Instagram. Mm. Oh, I highly recommend he's, it. He's so cute. <laughs> he's a very handsome man, very well groomed. Through this series, diversity and inclusion and representation are words that we will hear a lot, but I, I didn't necessarily expect to hear it in this episode, you know, in regard to mermaids. Well, it does seem like mer content is doing pretty well on that front mm. this time around. Uh, we talked about Freeform's TV show Siren, uh, in which the, the cast is super racially diverse mm. and the main siren is bisexual. And Megan actually told me that within mer communities, there's a lot of chatter right now about the forthcoming Disney Little Mermaid and the possibility of an actress of colour being cast as Ariel. I have actually seen a lot of tweets to that effect, yeah. So in terms of the question, why mermaids? Well, we've heard that many are attracted to the environmental side of things, Mm. the harnessing of optimism and joy as a means of advocating for our oceans. Yeah, and for poet Tei Tibble and her friend Jess, there's something about being both Māori and Pākehā that connects them to mermaids. Mm, Mm. The thing about being between two worlds. Exactly, and there's something else that Megan Dunn said to me that was along similar lines that I'll play now. So this is her recollecting a conversation that she had with Patricia Rosemer, who's the director of a cult mermaid classic of the 80s called I've Heard the Mermaids Singing. 
we were talking about the mermaid as a symbol across sexuality and culture and trans communities as well as um, gay people, heterosexual people, like all sorts of people identify with this hybrid figure. And she said to me, you know, maybe it's a time in the collective unconscious where we're trying to grapple with what we're becoming as a species, this moment of flux and transformation. So among others there, Megan mentioned that some within transgender communities especially identify with mermaids. Mm. And there's actually an organisation in the United Kingdom called Mermaids, which supports gender non-conforming young people and their families. So in the lead up to this episode, I came across a number of articles online written by transgender people about the extra special meaning that mermaids holds for them. Things like, you know, the fact that for better or worse, mermaids represent, you know, this epitome of femininity, mm-hmm. plus ideas around transformation and, as we've said, and here again and again, the idea of being between two worlds. Hello, my name is Ed Brown, and I go by the mer name, the Triton Modellini. Ed Brown lives in Seattle, where they work as a sailor and in their spare time get huge enjoyment from making and going out in various costumes, including as a mer. And because they identify as both trans and non-binary, to reflect that identity, they choose the mer prefix Triton. The god himself, Triton, was the son of Poseidon. And then he had children who were collectively called Tritons. Just FYI, Tritons are male and female, though they do tend to present more masculinely. It's hard to fit in. I'm kind of introverted and socially awkward and have anxiety. So it makes you feel othered a lot, especially growing up. So then you start to identify with the other. That's why I have a lot of non-human costumes, and especially like to explore merfolk that look less human. When I wear my tail, I also usually wear webbed gloves and fins, and I have scales on my upper body and on my back. I will say there's something very empowering about going out in public in a costume with a completely different identity. You're always kind of the center of attention. When you're dressed up, people see it and they think it's cool and they want to ask you questions. And they're approaching you, but usually not in a malicious way. Usually they're very friendly and interested, and that makes it easier to talk to people. Why do you say usually not malicious? You know, you sometimes get men who, especially on social media, will say that you're fat or you're ugly, things like that. Or sometimes people in real life will say oh why are you wearing that you know that's dumb i did an interview and video with someone and we got a lot of comments about how it's sad that adults feel the need to dress up and play pretend i think it's sad that there are people out there that have lost their desire to dress up and play pretend That's Ed Brown, also known as the Triton Martellini, who's talking with me over Skype about why they sometimes don a mer-tail. Right, this whole Triton thing is completely new to me and it's fascinating. Mm, this whole episode, I would say, is pretty new yeah. to me <laughs> and very fascinating. And it's nearly time to wrap, but there's some really important stuff that we haven't covered yet that we're just going to touch on now. And I first started to get clues about the fact that it might be important from talking with our mermaid expert and author Megan Dunn and the poet Tay Tibble. So here's them briefly and in that order. 
you know, you say you're writing a book about mermaids, everyone will kind of smile and laugh. And I like that mermaids are immediately associated with silliness. But there's also a triviality. And I think that still says something about how women are positioned in society. Mermaids are feminine. They're like stories of femininity. And I think that's why people brush them off as being like frivolous or silly. How's that any more silly than Superman or... Batman running around with his, with his gadgets and like it's not it's like not any more ridiculous or to not be taken as seriously it's just because mm. it's female so I put that to Dr Jenny Kokai and this is what she said mermaids are frequently represented with mirrors and combs because they're vain they don't understand that there's more to life than how one looks um so it's sort of they're always pretty but they're also criticized for being pretty. It's making me think of old white men on Twitter reacting to young women posting selfies. Uh, It is pretty much exactly the same thing. Uh Yeah. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I think it also represents the ways that Western culture criticizes teenage girls in particular. Mm. Like teenage girls and teenage girl culture is constantly denigrated. Like with the selfies, we criticize them for liking dumb books or boy bands or trashy things like Twilight and vampires and mermaids. And so I think it is absolutely all part and parcel of the same kind of cultural thing. And the fact that mermaids are intrinsically linked with the feminine and often with young women leads into some other ideas about what depictions of mermaids say about us and the ways we view female sexuality. Unless a mermaid gets legs, Mm. she's always going to be sexually unavailable, right? So she's like the perfect chaste woman who is beautiful and magical, but also can't ever lose her virginity because how would that happen? Uh, So that is another aspect of mermaids and teenagers that I find to be a very mixed message. Like culturally, you can express sexuality, but only to a point. You can never act on it. So you can never transgress. The mermaid tale is the chastity belt that's so interesting. It is. You know, we all know as well about the siren, who is the man-eater who will lure you in and then destroy you. Yeah. It's like a sea-based Madonna Hawk complex in action. Yes. Or what's going on there? Yes, there really is. Yes. And I think part of that is because those are two very different strands of mythology that we've sort of squished into one. So sirens and mermaids are quite different, is that what you're you're saying? Yeah. One of them is pretty much just a monster, and one of them is more or less a human that just has a a slight change in their anatomy. Frequently, that is the choice that you get. You're a horror movie mermaid, or you're a beautiful princess mermaid. Is that how you view female sexuality and and human women? Is there some... I would like to say no, but coming from the U.S. perspective right now, I mm. might say yes, that we are still deeply, deeply uncomfortable with women's sexuality. There is you know, quite a lot of political arguments about things like access to birth control, about you know, abortion. Mm. Uh, do people have abortions because they need to or just because they're like, you know, man-eating monsters who kill babies? Uh, you know, should teenage girls be having sex? Are they having sex? Are they horrible people if they have sex? Mm. Um, we, at least in the U.S., are deeply uncomfortable with women and sexuality. And I do think that concerns about female sexuality are pretty much what's going on with mermaids. So there you go. Do you have any thoughts about, you know, your thoughts and feelings about mermaids mm. when we started this episode versus now? 
I keep coming back to Daryl Hannah and Splash and seeing that movie at a formative age and thinking ah, how pretty she was. Yes. Um, even You're not though the she only had one. a tail. <laughs> um, it can't all be about Daryl Hannah, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> it's also funny how they are presented as these uh, really gorgeous creatures with a fishtail, whereas, you know... If it was the other way around and they had their sex organs but a big fish head, that would be not ideal. Oh, can we, if there are any artists listening who would like to draw this for us, this could be our first fan art. I, I want to see maybe, this. Maybe I might change my mind. And, and... maybe you can make it sexy. That's yeah. a challenge. <laughs> so before we go, I've got one last clip from Megan Dunn. Who, by the way, thank you, Megan. She was so instrumental in finding all the MERS to talk to for this episode and navigating all the complex MERS stuff. So if you still think that mermaids are silly or you are still likely to meet a mermaid and have an internal laugh, then this is something to keep in mind. Certainly this is a first-world job, but it does straddle many different ethnicities, many different backgrounds. And I suppose I look at all of these people performing as the mermaid as trying to bring this pagan, this ancient figure into their daily lives in a quest for meaning. I do think it's about that, even though it's also about all of these other surfacey things too. We're all trying to create our best life. I mean, if we've even got the privilege to be attempting it. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture. I'm Tony Stamp. I'm Melody Thomas. You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, or any number of other podcast providers. And if you like what we do, please leave a review. Pop Culture is produced by us, and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. What have we got in the next episode, Tony? We are going to take a look at something that I know you're... <laughs> fascinated by. I am fascinated by. We're going to take a look at something that is right up your alley. Melody. <laughs> it is the world of it is the world of competitive computer games. Amazing, can't wait.